This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Bob, and Jared, as a place where addicts could go to be treated with compassion and connection rather than control. And I think it's a great idea in in order to take care of drug addicts who need to get clean. They offer a super comfortable detox, which is critical. I know that I never wanted to detox in any place that was not comfortable. They have decades and decades of experience in treating addicts with co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They have amenities that you couldn't believe Sound bath meditation, surfing, sweat lodge, equine therapy, you name it, they've got it. If you're fucked and you need a place to go and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I totally recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the Dopey Patreon account. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And there's all of a sudden like a ton of material on Patreon. Good stuff. Last week we had dopey legend Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll on and he brought the dopey. I mean, Patreon is a way to uh, experience a little bit of dopey in the middle of the week. And it's also a way to hear from the members of the Dopey Nation. And a new policy is if you join Patreon and give at least two bucks a month, we will send you a dopey decal for your automobile. If you're willing to put it on, because then what if you're driving somewhere and someone's like, oh, shit, you listen to Dopey? Me too. It would be like meeting like an old friend. And even if you don't want the fucking decal, kick down a few bucks to keep the show happy, joyous and free. Also, uh, we have a new limited edition shirt. It was uh, Dopey Nation Nate's design with the praying mantis and the big bird and the upside down head. It's sort of like a a graffiti wild style dopey. It's available at dopeypodcast.com. We have shirts, tank tops, hoodies, long sleeves, lots of good stuff there at dopeypodcast.com. Check it out. If you want ski hats and snapbacks and stickers, I still have some. So just Venmo me at dopey podcast. Enough with the ads. Here is the fucking show. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And here I am, 
Oh, I'm Dave, and I'm in the attic with my great friend, Ray. But Ray's not in the attic. Ray is in Manhattan on 14th Street on Zoom. What's up, Ray? Hi, Dave. How you hey, feel? Dave. I'm good. How are you? I'm dying a slow death in the <laughs> pandemic of COVID-19. How about you? Um, I'm alive. I'm not dying. Well, it's the same thing. I mean, you're dying yeah. a slow death every day. Slowly dying. Every day limping towards the grave. I'm actually limping less. Like, turns out what I needed for my knee was just to not go to work for six weeks. Oh, yeah, man. Your work is way too physically grueling for, for your joints. That's for sure. And Ray looks like a monk. He shaved his head. He actually shaved his head on Facebook, which was incredibly satisfying to watch. And uh, how do you feel about no hair, Ray? I'm fine. That's cool. And I feel like a monk. I, have, I, I haven't had sex for uh, six weeks. Wow, so you still haven't broken down? No. Why not? Why haven't you taken any randos? I don't want to. I've had some offers. Ray, what is what's going on? Are you being cautious because of the coronavirus, or is the? Oh are, yeah, yeah. I had a hot guy like text me say come over, and I was like, no thanks. Wow. What what could make it work? Like, what if they said meet me at the bathroom? Like, you find some <laughs> nice like. Do you think the Plaza Hotel is open? Uh, I don't know. No, I, I, eventually something will happen. You know, I'm, I, I, uh, you know, I went on Zoloft, and uh, it, which is giving me like making me so jittery. But uh, I also got a prescription for Viagra, kind of recently. Well, that guy I was seeing, like he wanted it like every night, multiple times, like tantric sex and. Like I don't have a problem like getting and maintaining an erection, but I couldn't keep up with him, and so I got a prescription for Viagra. So now I have a three-month unused bottle of Viagra, and I'm on Zoloft, so I can't come. So I could just go all night now. But- all right, take it easy. You know, this is not an advertisement <laughs> for scruff. The question is, um, the question is like. Is it the mixture of Zoloft and therapy that's maybe making you make some safe and responsible choices, or is it just the fear? No, no I made that on my own. I don't want to catch. I don't want to catch COVID. But you'd be willing to catch syphilis or AIDS or anything else, just not I'm, not Corona nineteen or COVID nineteen. I've, I've never caught anything, and I, you know, I recently. I get I did a 23 and me ancestry thing and they had they ask you all these questions like it's really endless like can you raise one eyebrow things like that and one of the questions was how many people have you slept with oh no and I put a number down and they they immediately said please enter a valid number between 1 and 100 and my number was higher than 100 but I think a lot of people's number is higher than 100 Dopey Nation raise number just so you know it was 5000 <laughs> <laughs> right, it was, was 5,000 sex partners, right? That was your number. I, I have no idea. Yeah, probably. Ray was the Will Chamberlain of the Dopey Nation, um, and they didn't buy it. I'm not sure if I buy it either. I might be with 23andMe. 5,000 people? No, they said enter a number between 1 and 100, so 101 was not valid for them. But you texted me 5,000. That was the number. Yeah, yeah so that do, was the number I entered. But do you really think that it's the number is five thousand? Do you think that's yes. an accurate number? Yes. Did you ever like I, make a hash mark anywhere for each conquest, and, no. and then one day you tallied up? Well, where did you come up with the number? 
There's 365 days in a year. Yes. I've been sexually active for like 48 years. Right. That's how I've got it. Well, how many how many a week? What are we concocting here? That's like a hundred a year. A hundred a hundred a year. I mean, listen. I'm not here to say that this is accurate or not accurate. I don't even know my number. I think my number, I'm, I'm fairly sure it's below 100, though, I think. I mean, the last time I had a number, it was like 36, but that was a long time ago when I tallied up 36. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I See, if my number was 5,000, right? I could never fucking figure that out. I think if I really tried, I could remember every person I had sex with. I think I could. Oh, I can't. My my sponsor wanted me to make amends to everyone I've slept with. I was like, I don't know who they are. You're going to start like one of those uh, email blasts for your former <laughs> yeah. former sex the partners, woman, MailChimp. The woman concern. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so how is therapy? You're enjoying it? It's good. I, this woman is really great. Like this, they, the website paired me with her after asking some questions, and we have like hit it off, and it's really working for me. I I dig it. Did you and give her? Me. Did you give her the number of five thousand? No, I did not. And uh, but it's it's helping me. You know, I've never been in therapy, so I didn't really know what to expect, and I always scoffed at it. But it's it's helping me to like figure things out for myself. And she's very smart, and she she will chime in. But a lot of it is just me talking. Nice. Um, I used I had hardcore therapy before Linda and I got back together because I was so obsessed uh, with that, and that, that and and it was very very helpful. But then after we got back together, I found that I had nothing to talk to the therapist. <laughs> well, that's what I'm. I'm thinking I'm going to reach a point like that. Well, I had a thing where that guy I was crying about. I had a thought. Uh, he posted a picture on Instagram of his female flatmate, and then he posted another one. And I thought they're fucking, and I started to faint. Like I, I went into a, like a panic attack, and I thought this has to be fixed. And I thought I was like kind of getting better, so uh, that's what made me join. It was the obsessiveness over that dude. It was when I started fainting, thinking about him having sex with her. Right, and. Yeah. I'm just annoyed that you say flatmate. When did you start to say flatmate? When did you? Uh, roommate. Yeah, but when you say flatmate because this cocksucker says flatmate, right? He says flatmate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Housemate. And I don't say cocksucker because he's gay. I say cocksucker because he's an asshole, right? Well, you know, I don't feel that, that way about him. Well, I mean, I feel that way about him, and I've never met him. So I'm sure, I'm sure my opinion is incredibly valuable. Um. <laughs> Anyway, it's so today is Friday the 8th. Tomorrow is Linda's birthday and the next day is Mother's Day. So I'm fucking going and and of course I've done nothing. So I'm trying to get everything together now for all of these things. The world is shut down and I'm trying to get gifts together and it's very very stressful. I have a feeling that people are going to really struggle to pull off Mother's Day. But I saw this news report that said most Mother's Day people spend an average of $8 on Mother's Day and that this year, guess what the average amount of money people are spending is? Uh, $80. $205. Whoa. And I was like, fuck. What are people getting for $8? 
I don't know, like shitty, shitty stuff, a mug, a fucking magnet, you know, crappy stuff. But I don't know if it's true or not. I felt like, you know, I'm not a big fake news person, but $205 for Mother's Day seemed kind of like a a fake news to stimulate economy moment. And now I'm like, fuck, I got, I got to figure out how to put $205 together. Plus her birthday. It's very stressful. Her birthday is tomorrow. Her birthday is tomorrow. And mother, mother's day is Sunday. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get her, I'm going to get her a bike, like a a bicycle, which will definitely be over 205 bucks. And I was going to buy her this dumb necklace but um, the store didn't open up, so I went to another store, actually a, a store that's run by one of our fellows in a certain 12-step, uh, whatever you call it, 12-step group that I go to, and, and I bought a bunch of crap. I like bought everything at her store, so I have all this stuff. I bought a nice bag and some jewelry and this and that. So you're not going to do anything for Mother's Day, huh? No. Well? I, I used to send my mother flowers but i i won't this year because they're locked down and sending flowers might be sending covid yes nobody wants covid for mother's no no i'm also not even sure she would know they were there right well that's really the the other part of it totally totally um i actually wound up going you know my meeting still happens my my 12-step meeting and i parking lot well, they stopped doing it in the parking lot. Now they do it in this very beautiful place, this uh, preserve. And it's like beautiful. And it's like birds are flying everywhere. And it's like underneath like this kind of like almost a hoppa, like some sort of weird gazebo. Sounds great. It's beautiful. And I went and uh, and actually one of my, you know, I had a couple of sponsees that went out. One of them was your friend. I don't think he went out. I think he was just like, I don't need... I don't need Dave to sponsor me, your yeah. buddy. And then, yeah. and then this dude out here is a total mess, but he told, showed up at the meeting and he says he's been like basically living on the Long Island Railroad and, uh, and, and using and skateboarding around the empty city, which was depressing. Oh, I, w- I wonder if we're going to have outdoor meetings in the park here. I, I really miss meetings. I'm not liking Zoom meetings. I can't even pay attention to it. Like I find I drift off. Like I can't. I cannot connect with it. But I haven't tried hard enough. I don't know. Like they should. You know, my, this meeting that I went to was amazing. This woman uh, celebrated a year, and uh, and she's a nut. You know, she reminds me of a total total dopey nation style person. Um, but I don't. I don't tell her. I don't tell anybody about dopey at the meeting. But um, she came up to me afterwards because she's in a situation with her kids that was kind of similar to my situation and kind of she was asking, you know, what had happened or whatever. And I was just telling her about how, you know, just the nature of things over a long period of time changing and not necessarily noticing that they change. You know what I mean? Until you realize, oh, my God, what a huge change it's been. And... um, and actually, there was this other woman um, from Dopey Twitter who's a professor at the University of New Hampshire, and she asked me to speak to her. Uh, she, she's a professor, and she teaches a, a class on drugs and behavior, okay? And she asked me to be a speaker in her class, and I was like, cool, whatever. 
And she said, we're going to be talking about this clip from a documentary and I want you to watch it. And I said, okay. So she sent me a clip from the uh, Johnny Winter documentary. You know Johnny Winter, the albino blues guitar player? So apparently Johnny Winter was this terrible junkie who uh, became this intense methadone addict. And he was on methadone for like, you know, years and years and years and years and years. And uh, and his he was basically cared for by his family, and he was so fucking out of it. They were like, "We got to get this guy off methadone." He would like set fire to his hat while he was lighting up a cigarette, or he'd like pass out in his oatmeal. He was a fucking mess. And they decided, but he wasn't going to get off methadone. So they decided that they were going to get him off methadone without telling him. And they start whittling down his pills. You know, over years, you know, over yeah. years and, you know, and he doesn't even notice. And it gets to the point where like the pill is like tiny. So they're like, what are we going to do? So they started buying empty gel caps and putting <laughs> the methadone into the gel cap. And eventually he had kicked the methadone, but he didn't know it, you know. So they start giving him empty gel caps, you know, for two years. They gave Johnny, stop- huh? Did he stop lighting his hat on fire? Yeah, yeah, he got his shit together. He was like, but he didn't notice. He didn't know that he had changed. That's so funny. Because it was gradual. And it, he turned 70 years old, and they give him a birthday present. They give him a box, and inside the box is another box, and inside the box, the other box is another box, and it goes down and down and down and down until he opens up the box, and there's an, a pill in the box. And, and Johnny Winter, who's an old fucking dude, he might as well be on methadone. He, he looks at the guy and he goes, what's this, my methadone? And the guy's <laughs> like, yeah, open up the pill. And he goes, how do you open up a pill? And the guy's like, just pull apart the gel cap. And he pulls apart the gel cap and Johnny Winter goes, there's nothing in here. And he goes, you've been off methadone for two years, Johnny. <laughs> And like, and and he's like almost crying and it's like, but that's the deal. You know what I mean? Like over time you make changes and you don't necessarily notice, but isn't that crazy? Yeah. That, that, that last part, I just had a flashback. I would go into my mother's medicine cabinet and empty her pills out and replace them with flour. Oh no. What kind of pills did you steal? Like anything that was downs, you know, anything that said may cause drowsiness. Yes, and, he, <laughs> and he, we've secretly replaced your sedatives with flour. That's, that was really bad of me. Well, so, uh, you know, I was supposed to get a new sponsor on Saturday, and it was, was kind of sad because I was next to him in the Zoom room, and my sponsor was there, and then the meeting was over, and I wrote to my sponsor and said, did you contact him? And he said, no, I thought... You were talking in the chat room, but the chat was turned off. So on Saturday, we have to go back and like he didn't have a contact with him. But I was so excited to like, I'm going to get a new sponsor. I'm going to go through the steps like Saturday night or Sunday. And it didn't happen. Well, that's all right. It'll happen. You know, you'll make it happen and it'll happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I've been trying to get, you know, for forever, I've been trying to get like celebrities on Dopey. Everyone acts like they don't care about celebrities coming on Dopey, but they care, right? Oh, yeah. You know, so, like, I just want to give an update to the Dopey Nation about some people I've been trying to get, and I think it's time to call on the full power of the Dopey Nation 
to start hitting up some of these guys. Okay. For, three of these people I've never heard of. Yeah, I had a feeling. Uh, <laughs> who haven't you heard of on my list? The top three. Okay. Jason Muse is Jay from uh, Jay and Silent Bob. Oh, I know him. He's cool, yeah. Well, his wife had said that he would do it, and then she backed out. So Jason Muse is officially out of pocket, and he oh. will not do it. Dak Shepard is a comedic actor who has a podcast, a huge podcast. He is like the number 14 podcast in the world. And his producer was interested and then said Dax passed on the idea and he is out of pocket. Gone. So I think the Dopey Nation has to hit up Dax Shepard and Jason Mewes. Danny Trejo, he was the he's like an old Mexican actor. He he like was in um he was the star of Machete. He was in Breaking Bad, I think. He was in um uh Dusk Till Dawn. He's like an, an old school villainous sort of Mexican guy. And he's sober okay. like 30 years. He's out of pocket. Courtney Love, you remember that. Fucking That would be the that would be the best. I know, but I like creeped her out. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, like, totally creeped her out via... I was texting with her, which, like, what are the odds of me texting with Courtney Love? And I totally creeped her out. And then Russell Brand. you have any opinion about Russell Brand? Yeah, you know, I kind of don't like him, but I think he's very intelligent and his, his sobriety stuff is good. It's just, I don't know. I don't like his act. I think he's funny as hell, but he, he like... His whole thing now is about recovery. That's all he talks oh, yeah. about is no, recovery. Totally, yeah. He's like some kind of guru type, and yet Russell Brand has not acknowledged Dopey's existence. So he came. He came to one of those Dopey Brit meetings. It was somebody with his name did. It was not him. It was a fake <laughs> Russell Brand. It's like it's like me and Melissa. By the way, in Dopey Zoom. Two Melissas have contacted me saying that it's actually them. So, oh, oh good. Hi, Melissa. The mystery continues. And um, I don't know. Dopey Nation, it is time to reach out to Jason Muse, Dak Shepard, Danny Trejo, Courtney Love, and Russell Brand. Everybody pick one and, uh, and go to town. But be nice, right? I think you should... You should I don't know who you guys should focus on. I think we'll do a, a survey. We'll do a survey, and we'll see uh, what the Dopey Nation thinks. If you guys have an opinion, write me uh, at uh, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I'm very interested. Now we're going to go to the Dopey interview of the week. It's this woman. Her name is Holly Randall, and um, she actually is a... Uh, an erotic and adult video producer, photographer, and director. Okay, and here she is, Holly Randall. All right, super exciting. We have a, a different kind of guest today, and it's Holly Randall, the host of Holly Randall Unfiltered, a prolific and critically acclaimed adult photographer and, and do you say filmmaker? Uh, you could say director and producer. These days in the adult industry, you really have to be able to do everything because there's no budget to have like a 30-person crew. So, so <laughs> I'm there also she is. the uh, PA and the stylist. Right. Uh, so director, producer, PA, craft services, and, and thinker-upper, Holly yeah. Randall. Welcome to Dopey. Thank you for having me. 
And Holly, one of my favorite things about Holly is that she heard of Dopey and wanted to come on, which is very meaningful to me. Um, you yeah. have no idea how much that... Because This American Life is my favorite podcast, right? I listen to it all the time. And when I heard your episode on that show, I was so incredibly moved. I said it to all, like, all my sober friends, I'm like, you have to listen to this. Um, it was so incredibly moving, you know, not only just from the perspective of, of a recovering alcoholic and understanding what you went through, but also, you know, Chris's story and my story with my relapse and, you know, the hiding and the trying to pretend everything was okay. And, you know, I mean, I just heard that story and I was like that, you know, that could have been me. And um, I was just so, so moved by it. So, yeah, always been a big fan ever since. Right on. Well, I think that's amazing and I appreciate it. And, um, and we never have had anybody from the adult industry on. And I think it's also just, you know, you're not an adult industry performer. You're actually the person who, who makes the films and, and takes pictures and, and part of the industry, which I think is, is an interesting perspective. And, and I also think it's interesting when people talk about addiction, nowadays they, they run down a list of addictions. They're like, well, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's sex, there's food, there's gambling, and there's porn. So, like, what do you think about that, just in general, the idea of porn addiction and you creating it? You know, like, and I'm not being controversial. I'm just, like, kind of rattling it off in the beginning. No, I totally hear you. I mean, I think that, you know, you and anybody else who has been through recovery can understand that anything can become addicting, right? Anything that produces that dopamine response, that escape yes. from reality that we're seeking can be addicting. It can be food. It can be exercise. It can be sex, it can be love, it can be drugs, it can be alcohol, and it can definitely be porn, for sure. But I think that it's unfair to blame the porn industry for sex addiction in the same way that it would be unfair for me to blame Smirnoff for my problems with vodka. Um, my problems don't stem from this evil industry of alcohol production. Plenty of people can enjoy alcohol in a responsible manner. Plenty of people can enjoy porn in a responsible manner. I am not one of those people and you know my problem Wait, hold on. You but you can deeper. enjoy you can enjoy porn in a in a responsible. You're you're one of the people that can enjoy porn in a responsible way though, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, okay. I uh I never enjoy porn because I'm totally jaded from shooting it all the time. So, I rarely watch it for personally uh for personal reasons, I have to say. And before you got into making it, did you ever did you watch it at all? Were you a consumer of it at all? Yeah, I mean a little bit. So you know, I started when I was twenty, right? So I started back at the very beginning of the internet. Um, I started working for my parents, who had just launched their website, Suze.net. Uh, I, I should probably mention that it was a family business for me. That's how I got into the industry. My mother is Suze Randall, who is a very well known erotic photographer, who also made some. Uh, terrible movies um, with my father back in the seventies, <laughs> and uh, so so yeah, so I kind of grew up in the industry, and um, so I started working in it when I was twenty. So really, the only access to porn that there was before that that was easily consumable would have been like magazines and uh, VHS tapes. 
So, um, yeah, I saw a little bit of that on both ends, but it was never something that, you know, I consumed an insane amount of that I think was a problem in any way. <coughs> so what, what made you approach the industry? Did you just need, like, a summer job and you were like, Mom, could you give me a job kind of thing? So, actually, I was going to Brooks Institute of Photography. I wanted to be a photographer, but I wanted to be a fashion photographer, right? And so... Um, I was there. I was there for about a year and a half. I wasn't really feeling it. It's a very, like, commercial school, and um, I just wasn't enjoying it so much. And as I said, my parents had just launched their website, and this is the early days of the Internet, you know? And they just started making so much money. Like, it was just crazy because my mom had a huge library of work and people knew her name. And this is back before you could stream video, right? And so pictures were really like the only thing that you could kind of access online. And even then it took like forever to download a photo. But they started, you know, doing incredibly well and they were actually really overwhelmed by their success and they didn't really know what they were doing. And so my father actually was the one who asked me to move down and help them with the website. And I don't know, I just felt like I was ready to leave Santa Barbara, and so I did, with the idea that I would actually finish school at UCLA and then move on to, I don't know, become an English teacher or something. And I did finish school at UCLA, but then I just never left the porn industry. So Right, it's so funny because it's like the most classic family business in the most non-classic family business uh product and like what was the family dynamic like was it like because like your dad wanted help and you were going to become an English teacher and your mom was shooting pictures but it just so happens to be pictures of like cocks and assholes and sex and you know I mean like and I you know I've been known to enjoy porn I've got no moral question about it um but like where does the family you know because it sounds like your family was cool and loving and, and and how does the family dynamic and the porn dynamic interact in, in general? Yeah, I think this is something that is so difficult for so many people to grasp because so many people are raised with a sense of shame about sex and families don't talk about it and it's considered something that's dirty and porn is a bad thing. And obviously I was never raised with those values. My my parents, my mother always said that, you know, female body is a beautiful thing. Sex is a beautiful thing. Um, it was never anything that was taboo, so I don't think it was ever anything that ever really occupied my mind in any kind of obsessive way. Right. And so I think I was raised with a really healthy view of sex, and because of that, it wasn't something that... I don't know, it wasn't something that we talked about like a ton. Like it was something that I knew, you know, people always ask me like, when did you find out what your parents did for a living? And I don't recall there being like an epiphany, you know, like they didn't hide it from me when I was a child. I always knew that mom and dad made pictures for grownups. And that was kind of like, and I accepted that, you know, I was busy running the unicorn club. I didn't care about what mom and dad did for a living. Totally. So um, when I got older and hit puberty, I became a little bit more interested. But again, it was just, you know, and of course they they wouldn't let me see their work because it was for grownups. So I would sneak into the office, which was the guest house at the time, and I would, you know, steal a penthouse magazine here and there. But it was pretty harmless. And if you think about it, 
I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be a kid now, to be honest, and grow up with everything that you can find online. Because back then, really all I had access to was a couple of VHSs, which was really hard to watch because then I'd have to find a TV and a VCR that, like, my parents weren't around. Um, so mostly it was magazines. And back then, um, they didn't even show penetration in magazines. Right. So it was I remember- really softcore. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in this very basic middle-class Jewish family in Manhattan, and there was no sex, you know what I mean? There was no sex talked about in my home whatsoever. But I remember me and my dad would get our hair cut, cut at this place on 9th Avenue when I was a kid, and I remember I walked into the barbershop, and my dad, who's this very nerdy Jewish science teacher type, he was a very nerdy Jewish science teacher. He wasn't the type. And he's sitting there, and he's reading Playboy. And I was like, oh, Dad, you're reading Playboy. Or I go, well, you're looking at Playboy. And he goes, well, I just don't look at the pictures. I just look at it for the articles. And it was a big, <laughs> funny, funny story in my family. But, like, it's, it's just where the innocence crosses over. It, it's interesting. And also just, like, because you had started in your 20s or at 20, like, how how had your alcoholism progressed or what kind of drugs were you doing at that point? Like, where were you at in, in all that stuff? So I started drinking pretty... I started really getting into, like, drugs and alcohol when I was about uh, 16. Um, actually, no, that's not true. When I was 15, I bought a sheet of acid and my friend and I did it every weekend in the summer. No, wait, hold up. So the so. first thing you did is you bought a sheet of acid... And and you tripped no, every I, summer before you drank? No, 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 no. I drank before that. My parents are also, so my mom's British and my dad's South African. So they're not as strict about alcohol. They, they believe that the 21 and over rule is ridiculous. And they believed that, you know, if they allowed their kids to have alcohol here and there on special occasions, if they learned to drink it, right. um, then they would drink it in a responsible manner. Um, and that's pretty common in Europe. Um, Little did they know they were raising like a total alcoholic <laughs> with this prevention method. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think I would have turned out that way either way. Uh, I have a brother and a sister who are younger than me who were pretty much raised in the same manner. Neither of them have a problem with drugs or alcohol. So I do truly believe that it was something that I was born with and was going to manifest itself eventually anyhow. But so, um, you know, and through... High school, I, I had this cool surfer boyfriend, and we would go to keg parties, and he kind of taught me how to pound beer, and um, I became kind of popular in the way that I could drink like almost anybody under the table, and I thought that made me really cool. Um, I smoked a lot of pot. Um, you know, I did acid and shrooms. I never really did anything he- too heavy. I tried meth a couple times, did coke a couple times, but... I didn't really enjoy those drugs. I really, I mean, honestly, alcohol and pot, that was where it was at for me. That's what I really enjoyed. And I I loved the escape, and I loved getting fucked up. Dude, it was fun. Like, who wouldn't love that, right? And I went to college, and I drank a ton in college, but so did everybody else. So it felt like it wasn't such a big deal, you know? I wasn't the only person who was blacking out at parties and um, forgetting where they parked their car and... Uh, drinking a jug of Gallo wine and then walking down the dorm hallways with my pants off and trying to seduce the virgin down the street and getting thrown out of his room. 
Um, you know, because he'd be like, "You're like, too drunk. You're too drunk. I can't fuck you because you're too drunk." Or like, you just disgusted him because you were too. Oh, drunk. I was. I was disgusting. Like I was right. not a hot drunk. I was like. And I remember none of this, of course, but apparently I was thrown out of his room. I, I went in there. I tried, like, sitting on his lap. I'm not wearing pants, by the way. I'm trying to sit on his lap. His friends are all there. This poor guy was so sweet and so innocent, and I think that's what attracted me to him. I wanted to corrupt him. You know what I mean? I wanted that power. You wanted and to turn so, him out. Yeah. And so his friends kicked me out, and apparently I was, like, banging on the door for, like, 20 minutes, being like... Freddie, come out of here and fuck me, Freddie. Fuck me. I mean, like, that's how I talk like a fucking demon. Yeah. It's disgusting. Um, so he never fucked me, and I don't blame him at all. But, you know, in college, it was like, whatever. Like, we were all doing crazy shit. And, uh, and then I started to realize that maybe I had a problem once I graduated, and, you know, all of my friends started getting you know, getting into careers and started not drinking so much. And they stopped smoking six-foot bonglos and they stopped partying so much and they started basically growing up. And I figured, like, I would grow up one day too. Like, I was, wa- I was literally waiting for that day to arrive. I figured I would wake up and I would be a grown-up and I would be like, I'm not going to drink so much. Like, I'm going to cut all my drinking. I'm going to stop smoking pot. I'm going to be a responsible adult from here on out. I just thought it was something that would magically happen to me. And not only did that moment never come, but I continued to get worse. And that's when I started to realize I had a problem. And I remember, you know, my poor parents, like there's no, so there's nobody in my family that's ever been through recovery. I'm the only one. And I come from a long line of alcoholics. Like I mentioned, my father's South African they're all heavy, heavy drinkers on that side. Um, my mom's got a couple of heavy drinkers on her side. And I remember I said to my dad, I said, you know, Dad, I think I might have a drinking problem. And my dad was like, oh, no, you don't have a drinking problem. You're not an alcoholic. Alcoholics are the kind of people who drink in the morning. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. Like, I don't drink in the morning. And then I started drinking in the morning. And you're like, uh-oh, dun-dun-dun. Yeah. And that's when you... So what what was the progression like though? Because uh, you're you're working in the in the industry in the office, mm-hmm. and you're drinking and you're not maturing. And I had the same thing happen where I grew older and older, and I did not get any more mature, and I did not make any proper decisions. And right. you know, like I just got worse. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> I got you know. It's like the word spoiled really applies to me as yes. a. You know, and it's funny because the idea of somebody who's spoiled is somebody who gets everything they want or whatever. But I'm talking about just rotten, like as like a piece of fruit sits there, it gets spoiled. I became a drug addict that was ruined because I didn't grow. You know, my addiction grew. And that's what it sounds like you're saying, too. Um, So to walk us through, like, because I also just, you know. My, uh, I, I, unfortunately, I have a little bit of a, I, I like porn. Like, I've enjoyed porn mm. in my, uh, I never liked porn before I could watch it for free and in tiny <laughs> increments. Like, I didn't watch porn, like, when it was, like, my friends would have hours and hours of VHS porn. I never watched that. And I didn't love, like, uh, erotic magazines because it felt too set up. But mm. the, the, the whole, uh, world of free porn with nonchalant style porn. That's what 
got me into it where I didn't have to be committed to it. So like when you're right. working in within the industry and and your alcoholism is progressing, like what what did it look like? Oh man. Yeah, I mean talk about spoiled. I think that I probably would have hit a bottom much faster if I was working for anybody else but my parents. You know, um, and the internet had given us an enormous amount of freedom where my mom didn't really have to shoot for magazines anymore. She didn't need her clients in the way that she did. She was completely self-sufficient by creating content for our website. And so we were really like, you know, we were doing financially very, very well. And so life was really easy back then. So I think it was easy for me to kind of skate by and kind of do the bare minimum and show up to work drunk and, you know, kind of have my hand held and, you know, not face any real consequences to my actions. I mean, there are definite, definitely a couple of shoots that I do not remember finishing at all. And I, like, look at the pictures and I, I don't remember it whatsoever. And, like, you know, I would, I've passed out on set before. I mean, all this all this stuff that would have gotten me fired from any other job. But because it was my parents and because, you know, poor, you know, bless them, they didn't know how to deal with an alcoholic. You know, no one in my family's ever been in recovery. It was a, a mystery to them. And I think it was easier for them to kind of sort of pretend like it wasn't happening. Um, that just allowed me to continue to progress and get worse and worse and worse. Um, and as, as as somebody who who obviously never worked in the industry, and I don't know what it's like, and you hear stories about it being wild, and everybody's on drugs, and everybody's high, and and you're coming from it from this uh, from a family business, like how were the sets? Was it partying on the sets? Were other people drunk enough that they didn't notice you drunk? Were they all on coke? What was going on? Oh, Give it to us. No, 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 no. No, it wasn't no, like that. Not at all. Okay, so I basically grew. I worked in what I call the Sue's bubble, right? So my mom only shot for herself. She had the same crew members. You know, she ruled her sets with an iron fist, and there was no drinking. There was no drugs allowed on set whatsoever. So believe me, I wasn't drinking freely on set. I was sneaking alcohol when I thought nobody was watching. I was sneaking brandy in my purse, you know, bottles all over my car. And then I realized that brandy wasn't working because people, it has a pretty distinctive smell. So I thought if I moved to vodka, nobody would smell vodka on me, right? Because it's clear and it doesn't have a scent. So then I just started drinking vodka. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was apparent definitely to the crew members. Um, I think to my mom for sure. I think she didn't want to see it, but there were some times that you simply couldn't deny it. And um, I don't know. I don't think the models maybe noticed as much. I think it just depended on the day. You know, some days are worse than others. Some days um, I wasn't drinking on set. And uh, some days I definitely was. So it just, it just depended. But, yeah, no, we had very intimate, small, closed sets, uh, very tightly controlled with the exception of myself. Um, no drugs, no alcohol, nothing like that. And what was the leap like to sneaking? Like, when did, did you when did you notice like dependency? When did you notice like, holy shit, this isn't just Friday night, Saturday night? Like, when did it become 
like you said, drinking in the morning? Um, well, it definitely started with like me literally not being able to drink every night. I remember I had this fantasy that when I was 21, I was going to get this gorgeous bar. I was going to get one of those like little like carts. Um, and I was going to have all these mixers and these cocktail shakers and it was going to be really fancy. And I was going to have this high end top shelf liquor and I was going to mix myself like a drink every night, like a civilized person. Cause my parents drank, you know, and they drank, you know, they'd usually have a cocktail or two every night, but they weren't problem drinkers. And then, um, and I just couldn't like keep the alcohol. Like I would finish the bottle, like you know, in one night, and I'd try to have a couple of sips, and then I'd end up pounding it, because I was, con- the minute I started drinking, I was plagued by this fear that the alcohol was going to run out, like, that right. was always, like, this anxiety that kind of gripped me immediately, and then definitely drinking in the morning, um, and I think it's when it became, it got to the point where I had to drink in the morning to stop the shakes, and to stop myself from throwing up, that's when I realized it was a huge problem because now it wasn't just like, I wasn't just a problem drinker. Like I was physically dependent on it to get through the day. And that was horrible. And, and when, and how fast did, did you realize you needed treatment or you needed help or like, what did you do? So I, I remember I went, so this went on, um, until I was about 28 and, you know, I tried to get, like, sober by myself so many times. I, I tried moderation management. I tried marijuana maintenance. Um, I tried therapy. It's I too tried... bad marijuana maintenance doesn't work better. Yeah. I, yeah. I really was hoping that would work for me. Yeah. You know, didn't it work just for didn't... me at all. <laughs> um, I tried Prozac. I tried Zoloft. I thought, like, so I thought, okay, I'm drinking a lot because I'm depressed, if I take, like, antidepressants, then I won't be so depressed anymore and I won't drink, right? So I tried, I think they put me on Zoloft. And, of course, you're not supposed to drink on antidepressants, but of course I did. And, man, I got weird. I got right. so weird. That was, like, the worst because then I just got creepy. Like, really creepy. Like, trying, like coming on to people that were, like, my friends and... Like, I tried to convince one of my, like, really good friends not to marry his wife because, like, I was a better choice. Just, like, oh, God. I mean, that, that's when I got super weird. That was terrible. Uh-huh. Like, trying to steal people's boyfriends, something I'd never really done before. Um, so that didn't work. <laughs> oh, I tried Anne abuse, too. Um, and that was also terrible because I drank on the Anne abuse. Which, and that must have been terribly terrible. It was really bad. And, you know, I would, I would kind of try to manage it in a way where, like, I would take the abuse and then I'd drink. You know, you, it's supposed to make you throw up, right, so that you don't drink. Well, unfortunately, that didn't really work for me. It just made me, like, I remember actually it would make my hands go into this kind of weird rigor mortis, and they'd turn into these claws. Yes. And I couldn't walk. But I would fucking crawl to the fridge and I would open the freezer and I would get that bottle of vodka and I'd hold it like this with, between my crab claws because I couldn't... With your flippers, my hands, yes. And I would still drink the vodka. I mean, I could have died. Like, it's just crazy. Yeah. Like, nothing stopped me. Nothing. 
Was and was your career exciting. was your career in full swing at that point? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I I was an embarrassment at parties. I blacked out all the time. Um, I actually, I went to uh, the Temptation Awards. This only lasted one year. Um, it was supposed to be, you know, like kind of a rival to the AVN Awards. And I, f- I forget we won Best Photography Site or something like that. And I went up on stage and tried to pull my tits out. And I got thrown out of the show for trying to flash the crowd. Like the irony of getting thrown out of a porn award show for trying to pull your tits right. out is just like right. kind of hilarious. It's perfect. <laughs> Did, but and um, again, like when when you're working in this industry and you're a young woman and you're drinking yourself to oblivion, like were you having sex with any of the porn stars? Was that I mean, like as as a as a fan, I'm like I'm imagining when it's done, everyone's still fucking on the set and like <laughs> it's just like madness. Is it like how much of a sex like of an interoffice sex life is there? Is it does that happen? Uh, it, not pretty much non-existent. That is never. It, no, no, no. I mean, I'm sure it happens sometimes. I'm just kidding. Like, I believe you. Direct, but no, but you're right. A lot of people do believe that, but it really is very much just a job for us. We have done, to believe that. We all as go w- home. <laughs> as as watchers, we have to believe that when you say cut, like there's an orgy between the cameramen and the porn stars, and like the caterers jump in. We have to believe that it's as hot as it seems, right? Isn't that? Well, I mean, like if the- that helps you get through the day, then um, you can go ahead and believe that. <laughs> Let's get back. Let's get. Let's not. Let's not get sidetracked on my idiocy. Let's go back to your your terrible bottom where you're flashing the temptation awards and they're they're throwing you out of the building. Oh God, yeah. Good times. So, um, so then I I had a boyfriend who was actually a writer for AVN magazine, and we were both like alcoholics together, and that was uh, a terrible time. Um, we were a great match, and then, um, and then we broke up. And kind of as a revenge, I started dating this porn blogger named Luke Ford, who was pretty crazy. It's it's hard for me to get into his whole story without um, really sidetracking us. But basically, he was somebody who was trying very hard. He like converted to Judaism, um, Orthodox. But he was, he grew up in, an evangelist, Christian, and he had a really weird guilt complex with his obsession with porn and his desire to be an Orthodox Jew. And so he, like, reported on porn, but in this strange kind of twisted, self-hating, like, deprecating way. It was very bizarre. He was a really intelligent guy, but very disturbed. And so I started dating him at my Perfect bottom. choice. Yeah, and, and he started writing about me obsessively on his blog, and everyone in the industry wrote, read his blog. So then, like, my alcoholism really kind of came out into the blogging world um, because he would write about, you know, like, me blacking out or getting too drunk and, like, forgetting where I put my keys and, like, all this crazy shit. And, um, and so that was pretty much my bottom and, you know, and it's like, there wasn't any one specific incident that was my bottom. It wasn't like I crashed my car and that was my bottom. I mean, I did crash my car, but that was not my bottom. (laughs) Um, 
it was just like, I think, you know, one of those days you just get sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And I remember I walked up to my mom and she was shooting actually. And, uh, she was literally about to start shooting, and I just went up to her, and I was like, I need to go to rehab. And she was like, okay, okay. And the next day, they sent me to rehab. So she had an inkling that you oh. were not, yeah, oh. they knew. Yeah, they knew. They knew. They just didn't know what to do about it, you know? I mean, I kept, like, trying, and therapy, and Zoloft, and fucking, Yeah. And, uh, and they knew that you were struggling and that you weren't a quote-unquote responsible drinker, and they were probably relieved when you said you needed to go to rehab. Yes, I think so. So, of course, I went to rehab with the idea that um, I just needed a break, right? I wasn't actually going to stop drinking because that's crazy. I just needed a 30-day break, and I needed to learn how to drink like a lady. And that's what rehab was going to teach me. I just needed to dry out, get my shit together, and then I was going to come back, and I could be a normal drinker. And I remember being there and like telling the counselors this, and they were like, "Yeah, you'll be back." And I was like, "No, no, no, I'm different. I'm not like the rest of you. I have a good life. I have a good family. I had a good education, you know." Because I really, truly believe that alcoholics were only people who were like broken, who were trying to escape some kind of trauma they'd experienced in their lives. I didn't actually believe that it's something that could affect anybody, um, despite no matter your social status, your gender, your race, your education level, your family background, like any of those things. And so, it's interesting because lots of people, I mean, everybody tries to ascribe trauma as the root of addiction or alcoholism, but then it's like what defines trauma, you know what I mean? They might be yeah. right, but like people say you're traumatized the second you come out of the womb, you know, like yeah. trauma can come in so many different shapes and sizes. And I, I came from a very, very, very together family too, constantly looking, looking for the origin of this thing. And I mean, so like when, what you're saying like really resonates with me, like you don't know, like, why does it happen? Like, do you have any, did you ever like come up with a reason why this happened to you? I think honestly, and this is something that I've heard in so many meetings from so many different alcoholics, I think I was born uncomfortable in my own skin. Me too. And I, I lived in a fantasy world when I was a kid. Um, I always imagined being somebody else, somewhere else, um, something else. And I didn't really enjoy reality. I didn't, I didn't want to deal with the day-to-day. And the day-to-day was good like I had a great childhood there was nothing wrong with the day-to-day but it was just like I don't know it was never enough for me it wasn't it wasn't the magic that I think that I wanted and you know I was terribly insecure and um, I wasn't popular in school and uh, I just always felt like an outsider always and I still do kind of to this day it's (laughs) never really left me no, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. And so you're, when you're in treatment and you're like wanting to figure out how to be a kind of normal person, and they're like, you're going to be back here, how did, it, how did it spin out? When you left, did you get sober? Were you sober when you got out of the first treatment? So I came out, and of course I saved a nug of weed for myself for when I got out of treatment, right? So I got out, and I smoked it. And I went back to smoking pot pretty much immediately, but I didn't smoke it nearly as much. And I actually didn't drink for about three months. So I thought to myself, oh, I'm cured. This is great. Like, how wonderful wonderful for me. Good job, Holly. You're cured. 
And um, I remember it was my birthday. I think it was my 28th birthday. And, um, oh, no, 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 it wasn't because I went to rehab a second time when I was 28. So I think it was like my 27th birthday. And I was out to dinner with my parents and I ordered a glass of wine. And my mom looked at me like, whoa, we just spent all this money sending you to rehab. This is crazy. Why would you do that? And I'll never forget this moment because I think that this is one of the most frightening things about alcoholism and what encapsulates it so well is that I took her hand, I looked her in the eyes, and I meant this with every single fiber of my being. And I said to her, Mom, I promise you, I've learned how to drink like a lady. I'll never be that way ever again. I know now. I have the information that I've learned from rehab, and it's going to be different. I promise you. And I fucking believed it. I really, really did. And six months later, I was right back to where I was before. It's so funny. Do you think that there's ever been a treatment that said, when you get out of this treatment, you're going to be able to drink like a lady? Like, that's like the thing, <laughs> the opposite thing. Like, you're never, there is no drinking like a lady. That's a myth. Like, and you know, I mean, they've probably been saying that for 30 years since, since treatment started, right? right? And like, you hit your mother with that line, which is like, and to, total antithetical to any kind of recovery, which is perfect because, of course, you believed it because you wanted your cake and eat it too, which we all yes. do. Yeah, and you I know? thought it was different. I thought I was special, you know? And, uh, yeah, that, that didn't work. <laughs> and so you wound up back in treatment, and, and then you kind of realized what you had? Yeah. Um, yeah, when I went back, I, I knew that... I finally accepted the fact that I was never able to... I would never be able to drink again, which was a really hard thing for me to accept. You know, I'd grown up around alcohol. There was a lot of alcohol in my house, and it was always, you know, assigned with positive experiences. My dad liked to drink, and and it was a big bonding experience between the two of us drinking. So right. it felt like if I stopped drinking, it would kind of create this rift in our relationship. And, like, you know, how am I ever going to have fun again? How am I going to go to a party? How am I, like, going to go to New Year's Eve parties and not have champagne? I can never go to Italy and drink wine on the Amalfi Coast. Like, all of those things that we fantasize about. But my life had just gotten so bad, and I was so physically ill all the time. I mean, I'll, it, you know what? After this is done, I'll send you a picture of myself when I was at the height of my drinking. I look like an entirely different person, and I wasn't actually heavier than I am now. In fact, I was lighter than I am now because I'm heavy now because I'm pregnant. But um, I look like I ate myself. Like, I look like Gwyneth right. Paltrow from Shallow Hell. Like, it's crazy, the alcohol bloat. It's unbelievable the way that I look. Um, and, yeah, and my, my liver was swollen. I started having panic attacks, like severe panic attacks. I'd never had that before. I was just a mess. And, yeah, so when I finally went back, I, I knew that this was the end. Now, and so, so when, when, you, when you got it together that time, you, you went to treatment, you came out, and I, and I assume you were like, I'm in it this time. Sort of. <laughs> okay. So I, I went there and, you know, because I couldn't entirely um, focus on getting well, you know, I needed some other distraction. It was a co-ed rehab. And I started talking to, I was like 28 at the time, this like 22-year-old recovering heroin addict who was court-ordered there, right? So he was like avoiding jail by going to rehab. 
And we started talking on the phone. I mean, you know, we had co-ed, um, we had co-ed meetings and, and uh, therapy sessions, but the, the girls and the boys lived in different houses. So we would talk on the phone, and then somehow they found out that we were fraternizing, as they call it. And we both got called out on it. And this was, like, actually a really interesting experience. Um, I got called into the office by the guy who was running the program, who, by the way, was, like, a total dry alcoholic. Like, he was running a rehab, but he never went to meetings. He seemed really kind of angry. I mean, it's interesting how many people work in recovery who are, like, not really working in recovery, if you know what I'm saying. That's dangerous because, I mean, the industry is basically a bunch of people in recovery, and if they have a couple of bad months, that's what you have. You know what I mean? Anyway, continue, please. Yeah, so... So let me recap here. You're fraternizing with a 22-year-old heroin addict on the phone, Mm -hmm. and the head of rehab uh, is pissed off because he's jealous. I don't know what it was, but he basically told the boy that um, he should stay away from me because I was a whore because of what wow. I did for a living. Yeah, that was interesting. And then he also um, went and came into one of the therapy sessions and publicly shamed me in front of everybody and told all the guys that if they were caught either looking at me or speaking to me in any way that they would be thrown out of the rehab. He basically branded me with the scarlet letter. Like he has some serious issues with me because he knew I worked in the adult industry. Um, He was probably addicted to porn and obsessed with you. It sounds like he was like, he had a thing for you. No, maybe. I don't know. I wish, you know, I always like wanted to kind of go back and confront him about it. Cause at the time, you know, I was so fragile and vulnerable and you know, I was in fucking rehab. Like I was trying to get over this, this, alcohol addiction that had plagued me for 20 years and uh, I really didn't know how to handle that and I felt so ashamed and, and and just the fear that people had around me afterwards like you know and I could tell like everybody felt really bad for me I could tell even the counselor was like what the fuck is this and like but men the guys were so afraid to even look or talk to me because I might get thrown out it was like they made me this pariah it was really strange but I only had um, like half a week left. So that was kind of the condition in which I could stay in the rehab and not get kicked out was by like basically ostracizing me from right. everywhere. Now, I, went to a, I went to a treatment that was fucking bad and they would, their motto was they would break you down so that they could build you back up like force a bottom kind of thing. Do you think that this was possibly like they thought you were skating by and they wanted to like put you in check so that you would have to like thrive or have to work the steps or have to use a program to, to get out of it or anything like that? Honestly, I think you're right. I think it was this one guy had some serious issue with me because nobody else um, at the institution treated me like that. And I could tell that everybody felt quite horrified, but he was the owner. And so like there wasn't a lot that they could do to confront him about it but it was like really bizarre experience scumbag just a total scumbag yeah yeah so um i always wonder what happened to him but anyways uh so now it was like literally the day before i was to get out and there was a like little grocery mart across the street from where we did therapy and i was walking with one of the my girlfriends across the street to go get like something to drink 
and walking back was this guy that I had been busted for fraternizing with who, you know, we, I was being separated from. We weren't allowed in any of the same therapy classes. Definitely couldn't talk to each other. And he saw me, like, literally as we're crossing the crosswalk, and he was like, hey, what's up? And I go, you know we're not allowed to talk to each other. He's like, I know. And that was it. And while that happened, one of the fucking therapists happened to be driving by and saw us exchange, like, these five uh. words to each other. So I got booted. I had my mother come pick me up. He was supposed to go back to jail. So he took off. He left the house. He took off. He called me from a payphone, and uh, I drove back, and I picked him up. Now, I was, living, I was living alone at the time, and I hid him at my house for, like, two weeks. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, he was basically a fugitive. And Did you relapse with him? I drank... I'm sorry? Did you use with him? Like when he was staying with you? No. So the interesting thing was is that he remained sober. I got, like... I decided to drink one night. I got really frustrated. I actually, like, accidentally, like, knocked the door off of my car because I had too many Red Bulls and I was in a hurry. And I was, you know... I was not working the steps. I was not, like, <laughs> going to meetings. I was not, you know, I just was fresh out of rehab trying to go back to my life, like, exactly the way that it was. And I decided I was going to drink that night. And he was, like, and I convinced him to drink with me. And um, he was not into it. But I was, like, I'm going to drink. You can't stop me. And he was, like, okay, fine. I guess I'll drink with you. And, you know, 45 minutes later, I was in a blackout. And apparently... I scared the shit out of him. Um, I kept telling him to, like, punch me in the face, and I don't know what I was doing. But the next day, he was like, dude, you are out of control. And actually, that was the last time that I drank, was that weird relapse. Um, and then Ever? He, period? Oh, no. No, no, no. For seven <laughs> ye- sorry. For seven years. <laughs> right. And then, uh, and then eventually he turned himself in. And he went back to jail, and I used to, like, go visit him, you know, like, on the phone with the glass in between us. Like, I'll wait for you, baby. Like, I'm just going to wait for him. Like, like, it was so ridiculous. Did you ever press your nipple against the glass like they do in the movies? I, you know what? I think I missed that. I missed that calling. Okay. I'm sorry. So, Continue. But, but maybe, maybe someday <laughs> the opportunity will present itself. And, yeah, so, so then for seven I went to a sober living, which really helped. And um, I, you know, kind of met my tribe and I went to meetings and, um, you know, I got into the program. And, but I never really had a sponsor. Like, I had a sponsor at the beginning and she was somebody who looked like what I wanted. She was tall, she was skinny, she worked in the fashion industry, she was beautiful. But she was actually, like, deep down a terrible person. (laughs) Why? Um, well, first of all, she was like super Republican and not that Republicans are terrible people, but she actually was really angry with me because I was voting for Obama. Cause this is right. Like when Obama ran for his first term, Sure. And, you know, you're not supposed to bring politics into the sponsor relationship. And she no. would lecture me about like, why would I vote for Obama? Like what a terrible thing. She thought Ann Coulter was like the greatest thing ever. Like we were just not... We Simpatico. Yes, exactly. 
Um, and she also like kind of took the program half ass and she, and I remember when I read my fourth step to her, she was actually like shocked and made me feel kind of shamed about a lot of the things that I did. Um, that's kind of my problem with like the whole sponsor relationship thing. Now I have a wonderful sponsor now who I adore and who's really helped me, but it was really hard for me because it's like, you're supposed to pick this random stranger who, you know, to be honest, probably has zero um, training in therapy or anything like that and you're supposed to tell them all your secrets and they're supposed to give you like the right advice to like get through life and it's potentially dangerous it's potentially, potentially dangerous. dangerous my first sponsor this time around was really creepy and he came up to me like I just wanted to get better and he came up to me and he was like uh, do you have a sponsor? And I was like, no. And he's like, well, if I, if you let me be your sponsor, I'll get you through all 12 steps in less than a year. And I was like, that's what I want. you know. And the dude yeah. was really like creepy, but I wanted to work the steps quickly. And he wanted to read the book with me every week. So I was like, let's do it. And then the really fucked up thing was he relapsed. I think we had done, all, no, we had done like six steps or something and he relapsed and I like, thank God that he relapsed so he wouldn't have to be my sponsor, which, uh, you know, I'm not proud of it, but it was like, it was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. That's the thing. And that's kind of one of the things that I learned about, like the program kind of, it, it figures, it works things out in a way that I think that you wouldn't expect. You know, I think I, I wanted to come in and I thought, you know, the, the phrase that we say, there are no authorities in Alcoholics Anonymous, really resonates with me. Because when I first came into the program, I really did believe that everybody was an authority. And I looked up to anybody who had more time than me. And when I first came in, like, I was a young, cute girl, you know? And so sometimes I had creepy old men who were pretending to try to help me, but really were just trying to fuck me. And I remember... I'm sure often, right? Often. That must have happened all the time. It it happened pretty frequently. And I remember being so devastated that, you know, these people that I'm supposed to trust and this community who's supposed to help me fix my life would have people in there that would treat me like that. But, you know, like, the program is full of all kinds of people, just like the world is. And it's, it's part of the journey figuring out who you can trust and who you can't. Right. And when, you, and when you're getting your time together and uh, you're working a program, and did you go back to work uh, in the industry? Yes. Yes, I went back to work in the industry, and I held myself up. I, I realize now, you know, after this last relapse, I really allowed my ego to get so wrapped up in the identity of being a sober woman. Um, I, like I said, like I didn't have a sponsor after that last one. So I like kind of half-ass worked the steps and then I didn't do anything after that. I just kind of went to meetings and just, you know, socialized and, um, and fellowshiped. Yeah. Fellowship. And my life was good. Um, I got married. My career started to really take off. Um, I got really busy and, I, you know, stopped going to meetings as much because I felt like I didn't really need it. Like, everything was great. I had no desire to drink. I'll I'll never forget um, once we were having a barbecue and I opened up the freezer because I think somebody wanted, like, a a mixed drink and there was a bottle of vodka in there and I realized that it had been in there for six months and I hadn't even noticed it in those six months, which is crazy 
And I remember being like, this is amazing that this bottle of vodka has been sitting here for six months and like I didn't even like remember that we had it until now. So everything's going great. Um, you know, my life is wonderful. I did end up getting divorced, but, you know, stayed sober through all that. Everything was fine. Started dating someone new. And then, I don't know, like this... <laughs> you know how I feel like the universe tends to put things in front of you over and over again until you face it and deal with it? Right. And I wasn't really doing the work on like my mental health I was getting really stressed out I was getting really overwhelmed and um, and I was in Costa Rica on a job I was shooting for twisties and we went to this party and it was a very like fancy party there was catering and all this stuff and I remember eating this like dessert and I was like hmm this kind of tastes like weed how weird. Mm, right. And all of my, like, so all of my crew members, like my makeup artist, my assistant, like almost all the, the porn stars that I was with, they were all stoners, right? So they all smoked a ton of weed. Actually, one of the first things I did when I got there was I ordered, uh, I ordered, I mean, it was Costa Rica. I got a big bag of weed for everybody because my whole thing was just like, I want people to smoke pot, but not really drink because like I can get like stoners out of bed in the morning, but it's hard to get people who are hungover out of bed. Yeah. And um, so there was a lot of pot around the house, but you know, didn't think about it. So I'm eating this, this, this dessert. I'm like, God, this tastes like weed. And I asked my makeup artist, I'm like, does this taste like weed to you? And she's like, no, not really. It's like, okay, I must be crazy. So I finish it. And then, like, half an hour later, I'm feeling the effects. I'm like, there was fucking weed in that. And, of course, like I said, everybody else was a big stoner, so nobody else really felt the effects because I don't think it was very strong. But I felt it. And How long had it been since you had THC in you at that point? Seven years. Right, so it's got to fucking affect you. I remember I got clean for a year, and somebody gave me a pot cookie while I was waiting tables, and I was, like, fucking tripping. Yeah. You know, like... Anyway, continue, please. Yeah, so I so I called my sober sister when I got when we got back to where we were staying, and she was like, "Look, it was a slip. It wasn't your fault. You didn't know. Like, you didn't lose your time. As soon as you come home, let's go to meetings." I'm like, "Okay, great." And I hung up the phone, and I guess I got a case of the fuckets because I was like, "Well, fuck it. I'm already kind of high. There's all this pot around the place. I may as well just smoke a bowl and enjoy it and like go right. sit down by the beach and you know listen to the waves and just like enjoy this moment. And so I did. And of course, I didn't walk down to the beach and enjoy the moment. I sat in my room like with it spinning for like five hours, freaking out. It was a horrible experience. And, um, but I didn't tell anybody. And then I didn't drink for the rest of the trip. And I came home and I didn't drink or touch alcohol or touch weed or anything like that for like six months. So I thought right. I got away with it, you know, like I didn't need to, I didn't tell anybody, nobody knows, this was a secret, like nobody will actually know that I like actually did relapse. And then, like I said, like the universe works in funny ways, and I was doing laundry. So the model, when the models are in makeup, I put them in robes, right? So they like don't get lines from their laundry and stuff like that, and they don't get like makeup on their clothes, and they have something comfortable to wear in between sets. And uh, one of the girls had left a huge bag of weed in the pocket of one of the robes, 
and I found mm-hmm. it when I was doing laundry. And I, I'll never forget, I took it and I looked at it in my hand and I was like, this is a sign from God that I should smoke this. Right. Like that and was it probably was. <laughs> yeah. And I did. And then, you know, for a while I was able to do the marijuana maintenance. And then, you know, after the effects kind of wore off and I wasn't getting as high as before, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't getting me out of my head enough. And I turned to vodka and I was fucking back in it for four and a half years. Now, the weird thing is, is that this time I wasn't as bad as I was before. I wasn't drinking in the morning all the time. I wasn't drinking 24-7. I wasn't getting wasted on set. Like, I was controlling it better, but I was still so miserable because I wasn't really controlling it. I was just controlling it to an extent that I was, like, kind of getting away with it, and it wasn't interfering with work too much. Um, But I definitely felt miserable, and I felt like I wasn't in like time and space like I was kind of outside of my life like watching it go by and um and I in the most frustrating thing about the second time you know and trying to get sober and I went to like meetings all the time um you know I I had a sponsor like I did all the things but I wasn't getting sober right and I remember being so frustrated because it was like and this is another indication of like the craziness of addiction and the way that it really, when it gets its claws in you, it's so hard to get out of it. Was that like I knew how wonderful sobriety was? I knew how right. great life was on the other side. Like I had been there. I had built you found that freedom and that love and that, that joy. Freedom. Right, right. And I couldn't get it back. But like I could, but I couldn't. You know, it was just, it was so infuriating. And I'll never forget, I asked my friend, um, uh, my friend Josh Lazy, who's like actually pretty big in the AA community out here. He was like a musician and he's done, he does a ton of speaking. He's actually been on my podcast. And I remember asking him, I was like, when am I going to stop? You know, like, when am I going to stop drinking? Because I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm going to meetings, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm writing these stupid gratitude lists. And he goes, alcoholism is like fucking a gorilla. You're done when the gorilla's done. Wow. (laughs) And there was something about that that really struck me, you know, because, you know, the program has all these little, like, tropes that we throw out there, you know. That's the best, that's the best recovery cliche I've heard ever, and I've never heard that before. I know, right? Say it again. Say it one more time, please. Alcoholism is like being fucked by a gorilla. You're done when the gorilla's done. I love it. I love it. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry. No, but that, same for me, that made sense to me because, you know, I go to these meetings and people would say, like, don't drink no matter what, which is my least favorite one because I'm like, right. if I could not drink no matter what, I wouldn't fucking be here. Like, clearly, I, hate, I, hate, I can't drink no matter what. I hate my diseases in the parking lot doing push-ups while I'm in here. Like, <laughs> I hate that idea. But also, the other thing about get the, you're done when the gorilla's done, is done fucking you, it speaks to your whole line of work because you're watching all these gorillas fucking chicks and, like, this <laughs> madness. It, like, really, it speaks your language in a, in a weird sort of way, and I don't mean that to be as offensive as it sounds. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? No, I, it's funny. I actually didn't think about it that way. But I think for me, like, it spoke to me because it was kind of like this crude way to convey this message where it's like you don't have control over the outcome, right? So right, much yeah. Like you only have 
control over like taking the steps towards that because my sponsor would always say like you know don't worry about the outcome don't hang on so tightly to the end result like just keep doing the work and I was like but I'm doing all of this for the end result so I don't understand how you can say that like that makes no sense to me and for some reason like what he said made sense to me and I was like okay you know what I don't know when I'm gonna stop drinking I really don't know like I I'm just gonna keep doing the work and eventually it's going to happen for me because I believe that I am destined to live a sober life. So I just got to have faith that one day it will come to me. And that one day was when I finally swallowed my pride and decided to check into a sober living where I had to sleep on the bottom bunk in a room full of 19 year old girls at the age of 40. And there was you know? no, there was no like absolute bottom. The bottom yeah. was the bottom bunk in the yeah. silver living. Seriously. I got you. Yeah. yeah. It was just like me not wanting to be like intensely miserable all the time. Though to be fair, like I think what finally pushed me towards that, cause it was something that we were considering was I had a really bad 4th of July and my now husband, um, for the second time had to break down the door and pull me out of the bathtub, like totally passed out. So I think that was like the final kind of kick in the ass where they were like, okay, yeah, the sober living that we've been talking about, like you may be going to, but you didn't want to go because like, you know, you're the successful like working woman who doesn't want to sleep in a bunk bed in a room full of like five other 19 year old girls. Like you're going to go do that. You're going to swallow your pride and you're going to humble yourself and you're going to go do what it takes to get sober. And I did. And that was uh, like, I'll have two years God willing, and nice. stay sober in July, July 6th. Well, that's awesome. I love your story. I think it's great. And, um, and like, you know, everybody hears these sort of like uh, industry crazy drug, every, you know, everybody who is in porn is on drugs. Like, how untrue is that? Like, is there a crazy subculture of porn that is, is all about drug taking or is it, is it just another industry or is it both? Because I guess in the restaurant industry, there's a ton of drugs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I think it's all things. Um, There are definitely, like, you know, the younger crowd that's in porn that likes to party and do drugs. We've definitely lost some performers to drug overdoses, for sure. Um, You know, like any... Like the entertainment industry in general, we are definitely not unaffected by it. Right. I think the idea that the adult industry is full of disproportionately higher cases of drug and alcohol addiction is not true. There's a lot of people who see this as a serious and viable career and who come in and treat this like a real job and are being are very successful and doing very, very well at it. You know, people like Angela White. Um, and there's also a large community of openly sober uh, porn stars. And we have, uh, we have like industry only AA meetings every year at the AVN awards. And, um, there's Which is an awesome. entire, yeah. And there's an entire network that we've built now called pineapple support, which also helps people with therapy and deal with, um, drug addiction. There's been a big push towards addressing mental health in the adult industry ever since we lost August Ames a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so, so it's something that people are finally being open and, uh, talking about, and it's wonderful, and I've interviewed a lot of sober porn stars on my podcast, and it's um, it's so great to hear people's stories, and you know, because people have this idea that 
you know, you can only do porn if you're high on drugs or you're drunk because, you know, people see everything through the lens of their own experience because they think like, I couldn't do that unless I was really high on drugs and I was really fucked up. So therefore, nobody else could do it unless they were the same way because, you know, everybody's life experience is just like mine, which isn't true. And so it's really great to hear stories from these porn stars who, you know, have been through recovery and are now sober and enjoying, like, the most successful career trajectory they've ever had and still working actively in the adult industry and loving their job. Nice. Well, I think that's, that is a, a beautiful sentiment. And, uh, and I really appreciate you calling, calling in and being on with us. I think that's awesome and telling your story. And, uh, and I love the gorilla. You know? you, I mean, like, cause I, was, I was talking, whenever I talk to people about it, there is no way to know that you're done. You know what yeah. I mean? You're just sort of done when the gorilla stops fucking you. And it goes, yeah. it's the same with, with drug addiction, heroin addiction, everything. It's all the same stuff. And, um, I do really appreciate you coming on. It was a joy. Check out Holly Randall's fucking podcast, Holly Randall Unfiltered. Highly lauded podcast as well. <laughs> and, um, and please be in touch, Holly, and thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I thought she was really cool. That was Holly Randall. Her podcast is called Holly Randall Unfiltered. And I just thought she gave a really honest sort of version of her recovery. And we never hear just a story from a straight alcoholic. So I thought that was really cool. And she's obviously really smart and accomplished. Yeah, I I really enjoyed listening to her interview. That was great. The only thing that I wish I had talked more about porn. like, Like I wish I talked about more about porn I wish they would make. Like I like like porn like that happens in random places. Like... Like like you go to the library and, and something's going on and then you run yeah. into somebody and there's chemistry and they can't help but fuck each other in the library <laughs> or like something I, like that. I think she's like more high level porn. She's not like, I don't know, sounded like that. She is definitely high end. So check her out. Holly Randall. Google her. You'll see her stuff. And let's get on to um, an email. I'm going to read a dopey email. All right. It's from... Sweet Tea in Austin, Texas. You with me, Ray? Yep. Hello, Dave and Dopey Nation. They call me Sweet Tea, and I'm writing to you from Austin, Texas. While I was in my most recent rehab, I got the brilliant idea to start a podcast that would be a collection of war stories. Then I discovered Dopey. I have been listening to you since This American Life and when I had about 60 days. Now I have 18 months. I have been in and out of rehabs for 19 years and using for even longer, so I have a ton of stories. For now, I'll share two quick tales of methadonia. I dosed at the clinic every day for four years I was on methadone. I hated the daily drive and the long line I had to stand in every day. It was usually a 30-minute wait, but could be as long as 90 minutes. They only gave take-homes if you passed three months of UAs. I had switched from weed to being a daily K2 smoker while I had been on felony probation and never went back to weed once I was off paper, so that wasn't a problem. What prevented me from getting my take-homes was my newfound love of crack. Even though it only stayed in my system a few days, the UAs were randomly done twice a month. 
That is why I began saving my piss on the rare occasions when the crack had left my system. I'd save it and freeze it to take with me in case I got tested. I had to use my own piss because I needed urine that was positive for methadone but negative for everything else. This is very complicated. I would thaw out my frozen piss containers in the microwave and pour some in a five-hour energy container. To keep it the right temperature, I would drop the container in my hot coffee. When I got tested, they made me leave my purse but let me bring my coffee into the bathroom because I said it would help me pee. It worked, and I got two take-home doses per week. This is awesome. I started smoking more and more crack to the point when I would spend my dose money, $16 a day, on getting high the night before. So the next day, I would have to panhandle um, outside the clinic. What a low point. I usually could only afford to dose every other day, but I was on 160 milligrams, which is a high enough dose to keep me well. One day, I was coming home from the clinic where I dosed for the first time in a couple of days. I had been drinking the night before, and my stomach started to feel sick. I knew that if I had threw up my dose, I would definitely be very dope sick. I kept feeling sicker and sicker and finally pulled over when I realized throwing up was inevitable. My tires screeched as I pulled into a gas station parking lot. I quickly scanned my car for something to puke in and grabbed an old Tupperware container. As I ripped off the lid, my gut spewed out, filling the container. I didn't care who had been watching. I was going to be super dope sick now, and I knew it. There was only one way I could avoid it. I had to drink the puke. There was no way around it. I couldn't get another dose, and I didn't have money for heroin. I had to drink the puke. I used my fingers to strain out all of the big food chunks, took some deep breaths, and drank it. There was so much of it. I had to take several big gulps to get it all down. (laughs) Oh, my God. Disgusting. As I wiped my mouth with my sleeves and looked up, I realized I was being watched by several people outside the store. I can't imagine what they were thinking. I'm so glad to be off methadone and everything else. Stay strong, dopey nation, and toodles for Chris. Sweet tea from Austin, Texas. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That sweet tea wins for the most disgusting email ever. That is great. That oh. that is a great email. Did you ever hear the episode? Did you ever hear the episode with Jessa Reed, and uh, and she basically would smoke meth, right, and then piss, and then yeah. she and then she found out that yes. if she drank the piss, she'd get high on the meth. Yeah, that's so, I don't know. That seems okay to me, but puke. Well, you're fucking eating pubic hairs off the toilet seats and drinking <laughs> piss and stuff, right? So you'll do that, but you won't do this. Is what you're saying? Well, you know, the reason that humans throw up when we see or smell puke is it's like a tribal thing. Like if somebody's throwing up, that means they ate something you probably ate and your body is telling you to throw it up too. Well, let's get back to you drinking piss. Why do you feel okay about you drinking piss and not about this woman, sweet tea, drinking puke? Oh, you know, I was seeing sweet tea as a man. Me too, but it turned out she was a woman. Wow. So, wow, that makes it more hardcore somehow. Oh, yeah. You didn't realize she was a woman. Well, I mean, she could be a dude. She said she had a purse, and she, they wouldn't oh. let her take her purse in. Oh, and, right, all right. Know? So I'm assuming Sweet Tea is a woman, and, yeah. I, and I, uh, love, I love this disgusting story. Oh, my God. I think it's great. Um, now, 
And I like it. It's so complicated. Like these junkies get into like, it's so complicated and they figure it out and they know exactly what they need. It's like a science project. Well, people are willing to go to any length to stay as high as possible. I mean, the closest I had to do that was where I would figure out how long the heroin would be in my system so that I, I but I would just stop using. I would stop using for, for three days a week so that I always piss clean and that I'd always get my take homes, you know? Um, but I think what she said, the most important thing about what she said is like how nice it is to get off methadone. Getting off of methadone for me was like winning the ultimate prize like holy shit like to have to go it's like methadone the methadone clinic is like it's like the it's like a daycare for the biggest fuck-ups in all eternity (laughs) you know it's like there's like bulletin boards with shit on it and the same colors of a daycare but you're with like you know old junkies with canes but it looks like fucking kindergarten it's something I didn't really know about, and I'm learning from like Dopey Zoom that a lot of people on there are—they're not trying to get off drugs; they're trying to get off like the replacement drugs. Well, it's—it's it's, listen, and I, and I say that with a tongue in my cheek. If you're on methadone and it's working for you, you know, make it work. You know what I mean? Whatever, whatever you're doing that's good for you, make it work. Um, I don't know, man. I got—I've been doing this Patreon thing, and I yeah. played—I played this thing. For, and also, like, you've been listening to Patreon now, but you only listen to Patreon because you're afraid that I'm going to ask you on the show if you listen and you're going to say no. That's the only yes. reason you're listening to Patreon. I paid $2. Nice. Oh, yeah. If, if, you, pay, if you pay 2 bucks now, you're going to get a, a, dope, a dopey decal. You excited about that? You're going to get a dopey decal, right? Yes. You're going to put it on the car or you're scared Tony's going to see it? No, not going to put it on the car. <laughs> um. Anyway, on Dopey Patreon this week, I played this reading from Dave Masculani, who is obviously, if you don't know who Dave Masculani is, he's like, talks like this from Dave Masculani. And you actually know Dave Masculani, don't you? Me? Yeah. I know I'm from I know I'm from Zoom. Is he just like that, how he sounds on the recordings? Exactly, yeah. Anyway, he read Scott Wick's dopey verse slash poem, and I just thought it was brilliant. And it I thought awesome. And I thought I'd be doing you guys a disservice if you're not listening to Patreon. So I'm just gonna play it here. We scream dopey out loud. You smoke that hush. We smoke that loud. We slam shots inside crowds. Have our girls screaming like Rihanna, man down, man down. We spend so much money. Listen to me. You can learn something from me. So you use the jit, bitch. You ain't shit, but in your 20s, matter of fact, we sell rocks to his mummy. Bitch, I'm from Broward. I sold flock to your mummy. That's why her nose so motherfucking runny. That's why our ribs stick out further than our fucking tummies. Ladies of the night walk the streets like we fucking zombies. Might even fuck you for less than 20. Think it's sweet by a room, bitch. Now it's funny. Told you, boy, it ain't that fucking sunny. Y'all talk shit, but don't say shit in fucking front of me. Then they act like they's a friend to me. They ain't no friend to me. They the enemy. I got that remedy. 
I'm going to go to the fucking trunk. You're going to think that's fucking ten of me mad. I want to call my dad because it's all I ever had, man. It's all I ever had. Suckers make me mad. I want to call my dad because it's all I fucking have, man. It's all I fucking have. These suckers make me mad. I want to call my dad because it's all I ever had. These suckers make me mad. I want to call my dad. It's all I ever motherfucking had, bitch. Toodles. It's pretty fucking epic, right, Ray? It's so great. And you know... Uh, my friend Bo is obsessed with that song, and anytime the good so bad stuff comes up, I take a picture of it. Or so I videotaped that part, and I was trying to send that to Bo, but I actually sent it to Dave. Why don't? Why doesn't Bo cover it? Then I'll play it. I'll tell him what Bo should do. In fact, what all musicians in or out of the Dopey Nation, in or out of recovery, is record a thirty-second Dopey song. It could just be dopey, 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 dopey. You know, I'll play it, you know? And, and Bo, like, he's an amazing musician, so tell Bo to fucking do a 30-second dopey song. Your dopey song is one of the greatest things that Dopey ever played. I'll tell Bo listens to the show. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. Well, tell, tell the Dopey Nation how Bo said I was the most successful musician to come out of Cat Weasel because <laughs> of Dopey. That's true. Also, Ray had a friend... Who, who who checked me out on Facebook and decided how together I seemed and handsome I was, right? Wait, who is this? Your friend. I don't want to say her name on Dopey. Oh, okay. Now I know. Yeah, yeah. She saw you. She saw you on Facebook, and she saw your photos, and she said, "Dave's got such an idyllic life, a beautiful wife, the kids, such a perfect life." And I was like, "It's not as perfect as it looks on Facebook." What about how handsome I am? What about that part? Uh, she said how handsome you were, and uh, she said, I don't really know him, but I definitely remember him. I, you know, we weren't friends, but I definitely remember him, and I remember his song, and uh, yeah, his. she's just seeing you on Facebook, which is not, you know, it's not accurate. No, but wouldn't, I mean, I should send a postcard to the old methadone clinic, because they would be shocked to see at the life that I've managed to cultivate since the old want- days. I wonder if anybody ever does that. I, I would imagine some people do, but like I like could barely remember any of it. I was so uh, Xanaxed and clonopined and valiumed out that there was no way. And something else big happened, which is Ray got his first dick pic, penis Polaroid, if you will, from a member of the Dopey Nation. It's true. I got a dick pic on Facebook from a member of the Dopey Nation. Was it Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll? <laughs> no, I wish. He's hot. All right, take it easy. <laughs> um, um, but it, it also came with like a, a lot of uh, description of like what we would do if we got together. It wasn't just a dick pic. Wasn't it true that, that he wanted you to beat him until he bled? Wasn't that no, part of it? No, but th- there was a wife involved also, I think. He's right. married. Well, I think that's exciting. I was not uninterested. I... I I was enthusiastically, like, responding. I think we're good. How do you feel, Ray? You feel like this was a good episode for you? Yeah, yeah, this was great. I'm going to read the fucking... Like, what? This, this was the hardest show to do. This is I've been so anxious during this. I was anxious before we started because we were trying something, and this, this has been really hard to do. I really miss Alan's kitchen. Oh, yeah, it's much easier to do the show in person. I wonder if that's ever going to happen again. 
Yeah. I wonder if it's ever going to happen again. Yeah, it will. It will. Before we end the show, I'm going to end the show very controversially. I'm going to read this email that made me angry. And she said, it's Dopey Nation mainstay Nora, who spells her name like uh, my Nora spells her name, N-O-R-A-H. And it says, I love the podcast, but it's almost embarrassing to me that I enjoy something that is almost exclusively white, while every race has the afflicted. There are tons of people of color in and out of recovery. Please get some diversity on the show. Sometimes diversity takes work. Oh, my God. And getting out of your comfort level. Besides, your Dominican co-worker... Uh, besides your Dominican co-worker who has little to do with recovery, I don't remember anyone else after hundreds of episodes. Don't even make it about race. Just include other racial backgrounds. If you need a list of people, I have a bunch of friends of different colors in and out of recovery. Thanks for all your hard work. It sounds like she doesn't think I do that much hard work. She sounds like she wants me to get out of my comfort zone and and do a little work. And I'm going to say this, all right? Nora, number one, thank you for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. Number two, yes, the show takes a ton of work. Number three, yes, the show is not as diverse as, uh, as we'd like it to be. I would love it to be more diverse. Number four, if you want a more diverse show, you should probably make your own fucking podcast. Number five, if you want your friends to be on Dopey to tell their stories and their experiences, then have them send in a voicemail. I mean, like, dude, if we're not going to talk about the race, have them send in a voicemail, and I won't know what fucking race they are anyway. I, I don't even understand this email, and it makes me upset, but I don't handle uh, criticism well. I never have. What do you think, Ray? You think Dopey uh-huh. needs more diversity? Uh, sure, it could. I don't know how that's going to happen, though. I mean, Dopey is like just people that you meet, friends of yours and people you meet. It's not like you go out looking for people. I go out looking for celebrities, and the yeah. truth is Whoopi Goldberg doesn't want to do Dopey. I've been trying to get Whoopi Goldberg for fucking years. One day, she, one day she'll come on, but maybe she's not diverse enough. Maybe she doesn't Slash. check enough boxes. Slash. Slash, Saul? <laughs> you know, I interviewed Slash a million years ago. I know. And, um, oh, you do know. Yeah, he's, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if he'd be diverse enough for Nora. I don't know. Nora, listen, have your friends fucking send in some dopey voicemails or start your own podcast or both. You hate it's this stuff, good. don't you, Ray? I hate it. Why do you hate I'm it? Un- I'm uncomfortable. Well, we already went over this in private. I'm like, I don't want to talk about anything like politics or any anything that would be controversial. Well, I I think that the show should be more diverse. I don't like to be political on Dopey because I don't think politics on Dopey keeps Dopey happy, joyous, and free, right? Yep, yep. And I think that really the point of Dopey is um, – is to have a, a show about having fun in recovery and talk about the dumb shit we ever did out of recovery or in recovery, and it's about a vibe. It's not about uh, race. And yes, diversity is a great thing, but only diversity uh, because of natural circumstance, not affirmative, dopey affirmative action. It seems crazy to me. And it also, it also seems like earlier you were saying dopey is put together on a shoestring, and I said a shoestring on Friday night. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there isn't much of a budget. There isn't much time. I am open 
to anybody coming on the show, black, white, red, green, purple, orange, yellow, fucking I'll even have gay white people on the show from time to what? time. Um, <laughs> the point is uh, I'm open. I'm just trying to make the show as fun as it can be. You know, and I'm not saying black people aren't fun. I love black people. And and to be fair, I I huh, what are you gonna say, Ray? I was gonna say you throw me with that. Um, oh, I was gonna say I don't know if people realize this. The time that Dave is doing dopey, this time you just listen, is the only free two hours in his entire week. Well, not I mean it's it's pretty tough. It's very tough to put everything together. We tried to record earlier and like I'm coordinating deliveries for cats. I'm buying Mother's Day presents. I'm buying birthday presents. You know, and I, I've said all this stuff to Nora, not my daughter Nora, but Nora, the listener, and I feel bad. I would love the show to be more diverse. Everybody, send me something to help me make it better and more diverse, but I'm just putting out the best show I can put out. We're just doing our best over here, Nora, if that's your real name. Maybe when I... Get- when, when I get my DNA results back, the show might become more diverse. Yeah, maybe you're part Cherokee or something. <laughs> I believe that. Anyway, thank you, Ray. It's been a joy, as always, having you on. Thanks, Dave. Is there anything you want to add before you go? Any, anywhere that Dopey Nation members can send dick pics easily to you? Yeah, Facebook. Facebook Messenger. Send them, send them to Ray's Facebook. Um, Stay strong. Do you prefer circumcised, uncircumcised, uh, light brown? Do you like diverse cocks? Are you I happy? Don't care. Are you happy? Whatever care. it is. <laughs> I don't care. You don't need diversity in your dick pic selection. No. no. Huh? All right. Well, thank you, Ray. Goodbye, toodles. Before we go, we're going to call my dad and uh, we're going to get to him in a second. But first, I want to say. Just because Ray likes dick pics and wants to get them doesn't mean everybody out there needs to get a dick pic. And I just want everyone to know that it's not cool to be sending dick pics that aren't invited. Ray has invited the dick pic, so if you want to send Ray a pic of your dick, you go for it. But don't be sending pictures of your dick willy-nilly throughout the Dopey Nation. That's not the kind of scene we want to have here. Now, before we go, we're going to call my dad. We're going to get his prediction on the 4 millionth download, and we're going to have him read the Dopey Review of the Week. And I don't think I've been asking enough for reviews. I know Chris loved reviews more than anything. My dad, fucking, he's alone at home. He needs to read some new Dopey reviews. So you go on iTunes, you give a five-star review. Don't tear the show down. We don't need to hear about dick pics. Just leave a nice review. Think of my dad. And here we're going to call him. Dad, Alan, welcome back to the show. Yeah, hi. Hi, everybody. Hello, yeah, this is a tradition, hi. You sound, you sound no terrible. I'm, I'm not terrible. I sound good. What do you mean I sound terrible? I'm fine. Your voice is quivering, and you seem uh, not great. Are you okay? I'm, I'm, last night was a terrible night. I had, I don't know, terrible dreams, and I, I thought I caught the virus and that I didn't know what to do if I had it. What should I do? I mean, I don't have that many. Anyway, I got up in the morning. I'm fine. I don't have any symptoms. I have no temperature, and my voice is not quivering. I'm perfectly good. You can blame it on the phone. I had, um, I had some bad dreams last night, too. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it's just dreaming is weird when you're stuck at home. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's people dream more. Who knows? What no, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It's because you're not getting enough input out in the world. So uh-huh. your, so your brain. I, I mean, I, as far as I know, and I'm obviously not any kind of scientist or psychologist or doctor or anything. But as far as I know, 
dreaming is a chance for your brain to make sense of your life or your day. Yeah, well, it's pretty unsensible. Yeah, well, no, you're probably right. I mean, because you don't have enough going during the day, so you have to invent it while you're sleeping. Yeah, I dreamed that, like, I wasn't doing enough at work and I was in trouble. Yeah, well, maybe you were awake at that time. All right. So you're here for two reasons. One, oh, yeah. we're on the, 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 what am I saying, the precipice of four million downloads. You are oh. the, the amateur statistician who likes to predict when it's going to happen. And since yeah, we're so close, what's your prediction, Dad? Uh, May 13th to 14th, somewhere between May 13th and 14th. I need a real uh, solid prediction, Dad. This is a new... May, May, May 14th. What time? What time? Uh, uh, what time? Uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on May 14th. 10 in the morning on May 14th. Dopey Nation, uh, cast your vote. Maybe you can win a free pair of socks. All votes must go in either on Dopey Twitter or Dopey Patreon, or else I'm not paying attention. Pick the 4 millionth download to the minute. And then take a picture yeah. of your of your entry so that after we hit it, you can send me proof that you won, and I will send you a pair of dopey socks. Unless it is May 14th at 10 in the morning, in which case my dad gets another pair. What do you mean another pair? Didn't you take it back already? You don't have a pair? Of course I don't have a pair. You already took took back all your... Every time you give me something, you take it back. Anyway, tell the Dolby Nation how often have you rewarded the people who actually win these prizes. That's another tradition, is that I haven't been giving out the, the prizes. It's a dopey tradition. Yeah, well, great. That's why you're not going to get anybody guessing, maybe. Uh, maybe that's the reason. Well, so maybe, yeah. maybe this will be maybe this will be the time. You mean you might come through with a prize? Listen. Listen, if I win, I'll donate it to the second place person. The problem is not sending out a prize. The problem is documenting who actually won. Oh, all right. Okay, so it's not the winning that counts. It's just being in the game and participating. Is Is that the story? Document your victory. Let me know. And then I will send you a pair of socks. Shipping is going to open up, I think, this weekend. So, like, get ready. Now, that's number one. So you say May 14th, 10 in the morning. Number two, um, number two, I need you to read the Dopey Review of the Week. The one, which one? There's John from Mansfield or May Hold on, 7th. hold on. What are you guys doing? I'm recording this stupid show. Who, yeah. Get, come on in. It's Grandpa Alan. Oh, we want to show you the fourth grade video. All right, come on up. Is Nora still away? Yeah. So say hello to Grandpa. Hi, Grandpa. Hi, Grandpa. Hey, hi. Hi, Nora B. Hi, Linda. Hi. Love to you. We're hey, hanging good, in. All right, hold on. Before, okay. wait. We're going to get off the phone, but first... I want you to read that review because I don't want to have to call back after this. Read the newest review. It's very, very complimentary. Okay. This is Wow Far Stars by John from Mansfield. Hold on, Dad. What's a far star? I, I said five stars. Sorry, five. sorry. That's the one after four. Five. Got it? I'm okay. listening. 
This podcast is the best. Dave is the best interviewer since Stern. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. All right. Listen, uh, we, we could have arguments about this. However, however, that's a very, very nice, uh, a nice review. Yes, of course. Who do you think? Who do you think is a better interviewer than me? Who do I think is a better interviewer than you? All right. So you're on a par with Howard Stern. So in other words, I have to think of somebody who's better than you and Howard Stern. Is that what you're trying to get me to, to think of? Nora, come here. Uh, Barbara Walters. Okay, Linda says Barbara Walters is better. No one's can you Anderson think? Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper. <laughs> you, think, you think so? <laughs> what about you, no one's? I don't know any interviews. So I think Nora. I think Nora and I agreed that Elmo would be a better. I was going to say interview. Elmo. That's funny. All right, this has been a really amazing segment. Nora, why don't you say hello to the Dopey Nation, and then we'll be done. Hello. And Nora, um, can you talk about anything relevant that's going on these days with you? No. Why don't you tell the Dopey Nation about your lizard and his hunger strike? He stopped eating? Excuse me? No, it's because you're not giving him the right size worms. Yeah, you always give him the fat worms, and he doesn't eat them. He doesn't eat anything. True. Have you ever seen him eat anything? The crickets look like they were missing. Well, there you go. Nones, you got anything you want to say to the Dopey Nation? Stay strong. Bye. Bye. <laughs> say goodbye to Grandpa. Bye, Grandpa. Bye, Grandpa. Bye, Dad. So my dad hung up, and Linda and Nora left. And obviously, we're in this uh, global pandemic, and life is hard. But I need to tell you guys how much uh, it means to me that you are engaged with me and the show. And Misty, the masks are amazing. And all you fucking dopey Facebook administrators, Andrew, Catherine, Leah, and Paulina, and Paulina's birthday, happy fucking birthday, fucking Cormac on Reddit, fucking Tim from Philly just got sober, fucking... You know, I just want to thank everybody out there for being so about the show and being so involved and engaged. It means a lot to me. Of course, we have to thank Sam for all of his tireless work and um, and just everybody for being so involved and so cool. And um, it means everything. You know, Dopey is nothing without the Dopey Nation. So stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. This song is for Bradley. Fuck Bradley. Wherever you might be. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm jumping.